JP. Yes. I have a question for you. Okay, shoot. If you were to die today, mm -hmm. are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? Uh, I mean, I think so. Why yeah. do you think that? Uh, well, you know, I'm a good person. Um, okay. I volunteer on, on the weekends. Um, I've never committed any crimes. I've never uh, killed anybody <laughs> that I know of, okay. <laughs> right? Hey, well, let, well let, me, let me ask you this, all right? It's... Uh, yeah, you I mean you know you said you done no crime thing, but have you ever you ever told a lie? Oh uh, well, yeah, you know when I was like a kid and stuff, I, I, I lied a couple times about some stuff. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah, ever, yeah. You, ever, you ever you ever you ever look at a girl, you know, looked at a girl. You know what I'm saying? Oh yeah, dude, Kari were and season three of Sliders. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, well, because you know JP and uh, as, as Christians, we we believe that this is uh, that those kinds of things are sins, that crimes are sins. But also little things like little white lies, or you know, looking a little too long at a girl, or you know, mm -hmm. those are all sins. Let me let me I'm gonna tell you something right here. I got the, I got the Bible here. I <clears throat> uh, see that, yeah. And uh, you know, in Romans, oh. Paul says the wages that sin pays are death. But so so I, I want you to, I want to pause there for a moment, okay? Because okay, so the wages. I mean, you got a job, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You make some money, right? You earn a wage. Oh, totally. Yeah. Right. So, so what Paul's telling us, the Bible's telling us right here, is that the sins that we commit, you know, you're lying, you know, you're lusting. Right. It pays, just like a job. But you know what? It pays. It doesn't pay money. It pays death. Oh wow. Death. Yeah. And not just like you're gonna drop down and die, because mm -hmm. right, like obviously you've done the lying, you've done the looking, and you you're still here, right? Uh -huh. So it's not. It's not death in the traditional sense. It's a spiritual death. Oh, God. Yeah. But listen, listen. There's hope. Paul goes on to say here, but God's gift is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to be a Highlander. Right, But yeah. what it means is that you now have spiritual life. Uh-huh. And furthermore, the Bible goes on and tells us, it says, you know, that if we ask the Lord Jesus, if we, if we believe in our heart that God has saved us, and we ask the Lord Jesus to save us, you know what? You can know for 100% sure, buddy. Because here's the thing. This death that we talked about, this spiritual death, there's a harsh word that we know that. You know what it is? What's that? Hell. Oh. You don't want to go to hell, do you? No, I've, I've seen all dogs go to heaven, and hell looks bad. Hell, hell, hell doesn't, is, it's probably not a very good place, is it? No, not at all, no. So you know what? What? We've got the solution. What's... You know what you got to do, buddy. What's that? You need to ask Jesus to come to your heart. Okay, sir. Uh, all I ask is if you wanted fries of that order. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Masters of Divinity. I'm your moderator, JP, and I'm here... Always with Father Chuck. Always. So good to see you, sir. Mm -hmm. um, Glad you got your life right. <laughs> I did. Uh, uh, that discuss—I just want to say that discussion about heaven last week. Uh, a lot of thinking, man. Yeah. Like it. Okay. It, it really just kind of. Uh, I mean, it just gave me a lot to think about. I think one of the more fascinating things about 
religion and about even Christianity is, you know, the, that question of the afterlife. That is sort of where I think most, even though it's not supposed to be the point, I think it sort of uh, conjures most of the mystique. You know what I mean? Because at mm -hmm. that point, that's where you sort of become a part of uh, your beliefs. Like you kind of like, it's not just something you read. It's not just something you have your opinions about or even something you like act on. It's something that you kind of become a part of once you mm -hmm. reach that point in the afterlife. So it, it, it's just given me a lot to think about, about like, you know, my time on earth and, you know, what does it look like now? If I think that like it's gonna come here instead of me going somewhere else, and it it does it that does kind of change your thinking a little bit when you sort of look at it from that perspective, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to say that, and I, and I hope other people feel that way. I hope it's uh, inspired conversation at least. Well, it, it's also to me kind of interesting that at the same time that we're doing this little series on the afterlife, I'm also doing a study with my church on. Um, a book by a former professor, or well, still at PBA. He's not really a professor anymore. He's now the provost. But uh, Dr. Randy Richards, who was the dean of the School of Ministry during our senior year at PBA. And um, <clears throat> really neat guy. But he wrote this great book called uh, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And so we're reading that book as part of at my church. And <clears throat> one of the things I'm realizing, and I bring it up with them, I brought it up a few times, is that a lot of what they call Western really to me seems like just sort of bad theology and you know and so what they're trying to correct is less western culture stuff and more just some of the bad theology that has made its way into evangelical protestant christianity and <clears throat> i realized one of the things and i've brought this up with my with my with the church a few times is this notion of what we talked about last week about heaven right this idea that so many christians take for granted this belief that you know, we're, we're escaping, you know, earth is a, earth is a waiting room until we either go up or go down. And, right. and so one, so it, the important thing is to really reframe it back to what I think the scriptures are trying to start, you know, wanting to say about all of this, that it's not about escape. And like you said, it should, when you think of it that way, it should really kind of challenge your interactions and things with the world. So it's cool that you're, that you're saying that it's kind of interesting how it's also playing out in this other part of my life. Um, yeah. So like, I mean, give me some, a little more like, like, like anything more specific you want to say about that? Like that you're, well, you know, I think that it's, <clears throat> I think for the first time in a really long while, it sort of inspired me to maybe become more involved in my beliefs as a Christian, you know, the past, I want to say like a decade or so, I've just kind of like distanced myself from the event from, I mean, I, I distanced myself from the church, but it was more or less distancing myself from evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're starting to, I'm starting to learn that like so many of my beliefs and so many things that I came to, uh, that were like part of my faith wasn't anything sort of directly theological, but maybe just like some kind of like weird cultural osmosis things you know yeah. how and i think that's i think that happens in religion that that that's a thing that happens with a lot of beliefs um but it's like once i started to learn about like you know liberation theology and about um you know sort of what you shared about heaven that there are like sort of more solid concepts 
to approaching Christianity and religion and, and faith. Right. And, and what you're talking about, too, is something that I spent a while having to wrestle with is, is that evangelical Christianity is so good at getting you to think that they're the only true way of being Christian. And so when you start having tough questions, it becomes more like you're walking away from Christianity as a whole. There's no sense of that there might be an alternative out there. Like, well, David Bazan from Page of the Lion was one of the first to leave and then um, um, and stop calling himself a Christian. There was... Dave, uh, <clears throat> I keep wanting to say David Crowder. It's not David Crowder. It's the dude from the Cadence <laughs> Call. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know these people, dude. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I know a couple of other Christian musicians. But then there was also our boy, uh, Josh Harris. Josh Harris, right. You know, He'll he come just, crawling like, back, baby. But he just up and left Christianity altogether over yeah. this. You know, and it's and it's like, well, there are other ways of being Christian. And yeah. And I, it's just so fascinating to me watch all these people who've left the church and they've done so. Um, Derek Webb is who I was thinking of, by the way, musician. Okay. Um, it just seems a little bit like you couldn't have done some investigating first to find out that maybe there, you know, that there are other Christians out there who are like presenting it better. Because the criticisms that I hear them make, I'm like, as an Episcopalian, I'm like, oh yeah, we, we we've kind of addressed those things over here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's and that's another fascinating thing. You know, Cornell West talks about this. Um, he talks about, um, I guess someone asked him about like, what do you say to people who have like turned away from the church or whatever? And Cornell West said that you know he believes that everyone should have what he calls like a healthy do- dose of atheism. A certain kind of atheism is always healthy. Amen. I tell that to my dear brother Bill Maher all the time, you see. Because what atheism does, it at least cleans the deck. Yes, because sir. it claims that all gods are idols. And most gods are idols. Yes, it's just that the prophetic traditions, be it Judaism, Islam, or Christianity, are tied to this God of love and justice. But because we live in a society in which idolatry is so ubiquitous you view life as a gold rush you end up worshiping a golden calf Mm. and the golden rule because becomes only those who have the goal will rule that's idolatry all the way down so a lot of folk who've lost faith in god it's a very healthy thing because the god that they've lost faith in was probably an idol anyway and the challenge becomes are you still open enough and vulnerable enough in your soul to be open to something bigger than you that's connected to a love and justice, to honesty, decency, and integrity? And that really resonated with me because I always felt like, I don't feel like I, I, I like I, I, always, I always tell people like I dabbled in atheism and thought it was really lame. Um, so I didn't do it. <laughs> but like, I never really, I don't, people, I've never left the church. It's just, I feel like I left something in the church that mm-hmm. shouldn't be there. And I'm not trying to like, <clears throat> I know we have atheists who, who listen to our show and I'm not trying yeah. to like downplay what they believe. And I know that most people are atheists because they don't believe that like you need religion to be moral. And I agree with them on that. So I just want to, I want to pop right there because I've seen that a lot on social media is I've seen a lot of people sort of coming out as atheists and they're, they're sort of coming out aspect of it was to say like i don't need religion to, to be a good person and 
when I saw that, I was like, wow, that that's a that's both a misconstrual of religion, but it's also a pretty accurate uh, pretty accurate diagnosis of what's gone wrong with religion, where we've turned it into a moral code, where we've turned it into into you know like that it's you you oh, you, you, you got to do this to be a good person. Yeah, and a ways to like to police ourselves and stuff. Like yeah, and our own little a, call out culture. Right. It's just it's such a what a horrible like what a what a what a what a hollow version of this amazing and beautiful thing right to exist if it's just like oh well you can't be trusted so here's how you be good yeah i have no idea where i was going with any of that <laughs> i completely forgot <clears throat> well, i don't know what you're trying to say is that uh is that because you because you flirted with atheism you were bound for hell and so now we're going to talk about oh right hell. no way actually i think what i was actually what i was actually getting to <laughs> was that i do feel like i'm sort of coming back around and that you know the other day you and i were, were just texting and i sent you i sent you that meme it was a really funny meme of uh the matthew mark luke and john <laughs> Like John is dressed up as Elton John in a car, and there's like just a regular dude sitting next, and that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I was like, I yeah. don't get this. What does this mean? I'm like, I've been reading the Bible my whole life. What I don't get it. <laughs> and you had to you had to explain it to me. And I was like, How come right. I didn't know that? Like, I feel like I sh I, I probably should have known that. Um, it could have been because of the past ten years, like I said, I've just been kind of like distancing myself a little bit, and also because, like I said, I feel like growing up in the evangelical church you kind of learn things by osmosis and it's like, you don't get like a full necessarily narrative other than the broad narrative of like who Jesus is that right. like, you know, Joseph Campbell talks about or something, you know? Um, right. And, and so, if you're at a, and, yeah. like, and if you're at a church of a certain size, right, you're, you're getting it from your pastor. And then if you want to go to like a deeper level, you're going to a book study where they're studying a book written by your pastor. Yeah. Yeah. That there's that. There's also that. And, um, so I don't know. I, I like, I always, I'm not saying that I was like clueless. I definitely knew something cause I, I did rise pretty high in the ranks and PPAs, uh, you know, the, the, the religious life department, yeah. um, yeah, <laughs> which was not an accident. Um, but I don't know. There's this new, I, I do kind of have this sort of renewed idea or this sort of renewed interest, I should <clears> say, you know, there's two ways in which we can talk about hell, right? We can talk yeah. about hell as this, you know, eternal destiny type space. Right. But there's also the reality that if heaven, if heaven begins here on earth, mm -hmm. if, you know, we're connecting with heaven here in our life now, then that means that we can also connect with hell in the here and the now. And that, you know, people like King and others kind of recognize, Hey, here's a hell that's happening here. So let's try to steer away from that. Yeah. And I think, I guess I, a way to segue is that when and talking about sort of my, distancing myself it, it it was the sort of questions i've always had about hell that all, that suddenly arose mm -hmm. and that people really couldn't answer or it was always just because god you know what i mean right and right. one of them was always like, like what's the point of hell why do we have to go there why why does this even exist what what purpose is it serving mm-hmm and I think that kind of comes more from, I think those questions comes from, from a certain kind of understanding of hell. And, uh, that is where we, where we start from what I understand about hell, or at least I think where everyone kind of understands about hell, it's sort of like, like, I don't think there's a unifying 
idea of hell in the Bible. Like, it seems like everyone has their own sort of little opinion about what it is. And then it sort of got synthesized, like, around well, medieval times. Well, let me blow your mind. Okay, go ahead. Hell isn't in the Bible. Because the word hell doesn't isn't in the Bible. Right. Yeah, that, and that's what I read, too. And that there's, like, mm-hmm. other words, like, words like, like, Gehenna. Right. That's mentioned, I think, Mark... Yeah, that's in the, that's Jesus's word, the Gehenna of fire. Right, yeah. right. So, like, there's allusions to a place that's bad that you don't want to go to, mm-hmm. and this all, like I said, it all somewhere got synthesized by earlier Christians, like sometime, like maybe around medieval times or maybe a little earlier. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. So, am I? Am I? Am I close? Am I? You're close, man. I mean, yeah. I can I can lay out I can sort of lay out a bit of the trajectory of how we got from, you know, what what Jews in the first century believed to where we're at now. Okay. So we have to kind of go a little bit back to like last week, right? Where we we touched on some of this stuff, right? We talked about this idea that when you die, you don't actually go to heaven or hell. You're in the grave. Okay. Hebrew uses the word Sheol, and you see it in a lot of English uh, translations of the Psalms. They use the word Sheol to talk about this 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 space where people existed. Um, there's some indication in, in certain parts of the Bible that it could be a somewhat kind of pleasant experience to be in the grave, and for others it may be a less than pleasant experience to be in the grave. But either way, it's that's that's how the Bible conceives of what happens when we die: is that you know our our life essence is in this intermediate space, this, that are this, this space that's awaiting the resurrection of the dead. Right. So Jews believe that everyone is dying and going into Sheol until the Messiah appears. The Messiah will appear, um, will appear on the Mount of Olives, come down through the Kidron Valley, enter into the, uh, enter into the, 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 the city of Jerusalem. And all along the way, the graves are opening and bodies are coming out. Right. If you go to Jerusalem now on the whole side of um, the Mount of Olives in leading into the Kidron Valley is a giant cemetery because people want to be buried there so they're among the first people to be resurrected when the Messiah makes his appearance. On the side of, of the old city of Jerusalem, across the Kidron Valley is a Muslim cemetery that draws from a very similar kind of um, eschatological end of the world vision of this, the emergence of a final imam who will show up and enter the inner Jerusalem and the dead will rise, will rise um, as this figure enters into the city. So <clears throat> this is the, this is the worldview. This is how it worked for Jews in the first century. This is what they were looking to. Um, and it's still the way that Jews look at it today. Christians, um, we believe exactly the same things. The difference is that we just believe that the Messiah was revealed a little earlier to us. And so when Jesus returns, Jesus is fulfilling that Jewish messianic expectation. Um, and so, you know, Christians would say then that would mean that they would realize, oh, Jesus was the guy all along. And then one could argue that the Muslims would look and say, oh, Jesus is also the final imam too, right? So it, you, you have a sort of inclusive view to this. That was the, that's the way that they considered, you know, it was the idea that you die and then you die and you're waiting. Eventually things began to change and platonic ideas and others started to come in and we got more into this really kind of almost like warrior notion that when you die, you go either up to the glories, you know, that you've earned or you go down to suffer punishment. And that, that's a later development. Now the ling- linguistically in the Bible, the important thing to note is that um, 
as Jews were in the first century and they began to adapt themselves into a Hellenistic Greek culture, um, they translated the Bible into Greek, uh, Greek translation of the Bible known as the Septuagint. And when they did this, they used a Greek word for the grave to translate the Hebrew word Sheol, and the word that they use is Hades. Hades is the exact same thing. If you know Greek mythology, it's just the realm of the dead. It's just where people go when they die. Yeah, a little dark, a little gloomy, and as always, hey, full of dead people. What are you going to do? This thing where we have since created Hades as a shorthand for hell, meaning a place of punishment, is really kind of a new idea. In fact, a lot of our understanding of hell, of demons, of Satan, and all of that is actually more to do with Dante and with Milton than it has anything to do with what's actually in the Bible. Partly due to the fact that, you know, the, the Catholic Church for so long didn't put the liturgy or the scriptures in the language of the people, and so people right. who didn't speak Latin never learned any of this stuff, but they could read books written in English. And so, you know, it kind of put that more in the popular imagination. Yeah. So the ancient world just had this idea of the grave, right? right? Hell doesn't become a reality in the arc of the scriptures until the book of Revelation after the resurrection of the dead, and we have something called the final judgment. And the final judgment is where decisions are made. And people either enter into the new city, Jerusalem, they enter into this eternal paradise, or they wind up being cast into a into something called the lake of fire. So even within the Bible, the idea of hell is something that you don't die and go to. Yeah, you see, don't get and, there until after a period of judgment. Yeah, and that always confused me growing up, because we, we definitely believed... And the schools I went to, the churches I went to with that, if, if, you, if you, know, you didn't have a relationship with Jesus, you died, you went to hell. But there is that second coming. So, mm -hmm. okay, so I, I, I will actually leave hell, and then I get judged and go to second hell, which is the lake of fire, yeah. right? And that never made, yeah, well, made, made sense to me. Like, okay, my, my fate is already spoken for here. Like, I don't understand why we have to go through this whole, like, process. It's like the DMV. Like, it's a bunch of paperwork we have to go through. Like, Yeah, well, it's the, it's, I mean, the, the book of Revelation refers to it as the second death, right? And so I heard my pastors talk about it. That's exactly that way. Like, you, yeah, you get relief from hell only to get thrown back in later. And it's like, man, that's cruel. It just seems um, pointless and superfluous. I don't, that's one of those things that just did, did make sense to me. Yeah, well, because it's not again, efficient. Well, because they're treating the Book of Revelation is they're trying to make a linear thing out of it. And the thing about the Book of Revelation is, is, is that it's a vision and it's chaotic and it doesn't always make linear sense. And it's not supposed to because it's actually this mystical interpretation of things happening behind the scenes of our world or whatever, and with a little bit of a vision to the future. I mean, the thing for me is, is that I, I'm a I'm a believer that the cross is God's judgment seat and that God rendered judgment on the cross. And the, the, and the, and the verdict was, you know, father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So I'll get to what I, what of how we can how we understand hell within that kind of framework here in a minute. But the other thing that we have to address in this is this whole, you know, idea of Satan ruling over this like fiery inferno full of demons. And that's not biblical either. Well, first of all, the word Satan comes from the Hebrew hasatan, which just means like the accuser the or the opposition or the enemy. Um, pretty consistently throughout scripture, they don't depict Satan as like the anti-God, right? Like, you know, he's, he's just the opposite of God, right? Like that would, that would be a problem, right? Because if God is this, you know, supreme being who has created everything then he can then god can have no opposite or like no equal even even an evil so 
there so that so that model doesn't really work right but that's where our sort of western dualistic thinking comes from um pretty consistently scripture sort of sees satan as like a collective term satan is more of like a um i'm trying to think of how to how to describe it it's because i don't want to say it's you know satan's like a feeling but it's it's sort of like you know jesus calls peter satan at one point Mm-hmm. He says, "Get behind me, Satan! You know, you set your mind on things of, you know, on things of mortals rather than the things of God." Because in that moment, Peter is serving as a tempter to Jesus. So Jesus is saying, "In this moment, here's Satan, right? You're you're embodying this quality that makes you satanic." Um, and so, like the idea that there is a like the Satan, like this one superior prince of demons, that's not biblical. Now, I know some people listening are like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait! His name is Lucifer, and we know about him from the Book of Daniel." So that story in the book of Daniel about how he sees Lucifer and he sees Lucifer fall, um, that most scholars of the Bible think that are pretty much in agreement that what Daniel is talking about there is he is actually referring to, I want to say it was a, it was a certain Persian king um, who had the title of being morning star. And then the, the king sort of, you know, kind of went back on his promises to protect Jews or whatever, if I remember my history correctly. Right. And Daniel is also, that's also part of the Hellenistic kind of influence, right? right? Yeah, the, the, the book of Daniel and also the, um, uh, uh, the book of Enoch. Yeah. Enoch, non extra biblical book, but yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so. See, guys, I, so, I, I know my stuff too. All right. There you go. Um, And so, you know, so this idea then that, so then what do we do? What are demons? Oh, demons are fun to talk about because we tend to think of demons. And what do you think of demons, JP? What are they? Well, I should point out that we've actually had an episode about this. I think I've evolved from that time. (laughs) Probably. Okay. Well, I'll just tell you sort of my understanding of demons is growing up. And going to you know an evangelical church, evangelical high school and college, a demon is somebody, something basically the opposite of an angel. There are these sort of uh, uh, dimensional uh, metaphysical beings who, instead of where the, where the angels are trying to influence us to do good things, demons are trying to influence us to do bad things. They're here to tempt us. They're here to draw us away from God. They're trying to kill us. Uh, they are fallen angels. They, when when Lucifer was knocked down from heaven into hell, he took a third of the angels with them, and that is who they are. And they are all—they're just sort of plaguing the earth, trying to influence us away from God. Okay. And sometimes so, they possess us for fun. All right. So in the movie Aladdin, right? What what does he encounter in the lamp? A genie. It's a demon. Oh, the okay. Because I, I know, so I, I do know. Word, so the word genie yeah. comes from the word gene, yeah. which is an Arabic word, which itself is a translate or is a take off of this Hebrew concept of these types of spirits that are sometimes called unclean spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was in general, generally in use among among ancient Jews to refer to like if people were sick, oh they've got an unclean spirit, or if they're speak if they're if they're you know if they're you know, basically, if they have various mental health issues they couldn't explain, they have an evil spirit or they have an unclean spirit in them. Um, <clears throat> but the word that's used there and the concept in it doesn't necessarily always refer to something negative and bad. Um, it's, you know, unclean might be more better to say like ungodly spirit. In other words, it's not God. So in some cases, 
they are they are harmful, but in others, there's just other spirits that live out there in in creation, right? Within, um, well, I know within the Arabic world, the way I understand it, kind of bar- taking out of some of the Jewish stuff, is that they can possess trees, they can possess you know objects, people, things like that. Um, it's just sort of part of this ancient cosmology. Now, the word demon, though, comes from the Greek word daimonos, which is in antiquity was just a word for the gods or or you know the yeah the gods of the religion. And so some are good, some are bad, some are benign. In conceiving of this in, in, in probably a little bit more accurate terms, it'd be a little bit more like the, maybe a bit like the Okami from Shinto, which are these spirits that sort of kind of inhabit everything. And there's good and there's bad and there's benign. There's some that are pranksters. There's some that are helpful. If you read in like First Corinthians, Paul talks about to the churches, you know, I don't want you to share in the table with demons. We read that passage as like Satan worship, you know, Oh no, they're playing D and D or something, right? But what, um, but what Paul is actually saying is, is, is uh, you can't, you can't serve the God, the one true God that we believe in, and these other gods. You, you have to make a choice. Over time, we develop this negative connotation of the word demon because, right, it's not the God of the Christians, and so therefore they're evil. And so then it kind of started taking on this other dimension that we've then interpreted them back into this story of from Daniel about. These being these, you know, celestial beings cast out of the heavens, that that's what they are, that they are fallen angels and all this kind of stuff. But what it comes down to is we have to remember that the ancient Roman world was profoundly weird and they believed in this whole high, this whole just, you know, plethora of spiritual beings that existed, you know, in various levels of, you know, reality and whatnot. It's like Pokemon. Yeah. And like the Christians kind of, you know, the Christians, you know, especially if they were Gentile Christians, this is the world they came from. And this is sort of the world they held on to a little bit. It's just how they saw things. And so, you know, eventually we morphed and understood these things in different ways. Um, But I think over over time, it has led us to develop this whole view of what's going on behind the scenes that is really inaccurate and I think ultimately perverts what makes the good news of Jesus Christ good news? Because, you know, we've made it into, well, I mean, we've made it, you know, we, you know, I mean, we know what we've made it into. We've made it into this fear of dying and going to hell and being eternally separated from God. And that to me is a problem because it indicates that there's something more powerful than God. Because if you have to go to hell forever, that means that God is unable to remove you from hell. Therefore, hell is more powerful than God. Or that he's not as merciful as we're all saying he is. Right. So what what changed my thinking about hell was reading, um, was reading C.S. Lewis, particularly of Abolition of Man, where he makes this really great point of saying that rebellious to the end— I mean, he's coming off of reading Origin and some other people, but he says, rebellious to the end, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. This idea that hell is not a place that we are cast into, but rather a state of being that we put ourselves. It was a very interesting thing that basically Lewis wants to lay out, and I think I agree with this, that, that hell is a space for people who have seen what is good and right and true and have still said no. The idea that we as people in our ignorance and our limited capacity to understand the grand mysteries of the universe, that we would somehow 
wind up like suffering for an eternity because the missionary didn't get to us at the right time. Like that just doesn't, that doesn't, that yeah. doesn't work for me. Me neither. I don't think it works with the God of the scriptures. And I, and I always kind of found it very strange and I guess I, I kind of ran with it at the time, but mm-hmm. I was always taught that like, even if you were like born on a desert Island and had no connection to anybody, you'd find out about Jesus somehow like either in a vision or something or a dream. And people would tell me these things like, you know, the story about the one remote tribe. They never told me which one. They didn't have any contact with the outside world, but their leader had a vision of a cross or something and they drew it on the ground and then they kind of made a church without even knowing it or something. I don't know. That, yeah. That's the kind of I, stuff that they would feed me <laughs> to be right. to, to excuse the fact that, oh, what if you have no contact with the outside world? If you just... And to also explain that everybody knows about it. So that, and so we're kind of hitting around what sort of inspired me to make that little opening dry open thing, which is that we've turned the Christian story into not so much about getting to heaven, but avoiding hell. That's why we need to talk about what hell is. Well, first of all, the problem that comes with if hell exists, then that means it's a space that God created. And if God created it, then he doesn't have to send anyone there, right? Correct. So, yes. yeah. so this this opens up some of the big some of the big, you know, I think, you know, fairly valid criticisms leveled at Christianity by atheists and others. But here's the thing. What if we conceive of it differently? Okay? What if we conceive of it as this? When God created something, by virtue of something coming into existence, Nothing also came into existence because in order for there to be something, you have to have nothing, right? In order for something to have definition, in order for it to be a thing, there has to be this nothingness outside of it in order for it to to have that definition. It's also like kind of the action reaction kind of thing. Right. So in creating the universe... The consequence of creating something is that nothing also came into being. Very important theologian from the early 20th century by the name of, or from the, yeah, early 20th century by the name of uh, Karl Barth talked about this. Um, And he talks about it as the nihil or the nothingness. And as he puts it, he says that, you know, God did not intentionally create the nothingness. It came into being as a result Therefore, it is an alien and stubborn factor in creation, but it is not beyond his ability to like account for it. So, all right, so we've got that. We've got we've got something, nothing is nothing then arises as a result of that. The same way as soon as light is created, darkness also comes into being as a consequence of light being created. And we can kind of start following that trajectory off throughout the creation narrative. Um Ultimately, when God creates humans, God create imbues human beings with something of himself, right? We, we refer to it as he breathes into them the breath of life, but we are meant to echo and mirror God. God being a truly unique, sovereign being who is under no obligations to anyone or anything, able to make full, complete choices, right? God created beings that also have the ability to make choices, and therefore he creates beings that are able that are that are capable of actually loving right because if if there is no choice it's not love in order for love to be genuine there has to be choice and so god then creates us with that capacity for love 
But this is where some people might say a risk comes into being in, in God creating us because it gives the risk for us to choose something other than what God would want for us to choose. And that's ultimately what we see what happens is in uh, the way the, the Genesis story tells it, which you know to me is not necessarily a literal historical scientific story, but it's this metaphorical poetic telling of where things went wrong for us as people, is that this serpent who had the ability to talk, and this serpent may not very may very well not be Satan, by the way, it's just a snake that could talk, um, shows up and basically what he says to Adam and Eve, or he says to Eve, is he says, you know, God's told you, you know, how you know, it's kind of absurd that God's told you not to eat of this particular tree. He says, you know, you're not going to die. And as rabbis will say, the reason the serpent can say that is because the serpent has been allowed to eat the tree because the tree has only been prohibited to people, not to animals. And so basically the snake is just like, look, I've eaten from it. I'm fine. Nothing's happened to me. And so the, the thing is, is less the snake trying to seduce even Adam over to the dark side. And it's more the snake is just making state, matter of fact statements based off of, based off of its own experience. And because if you notice, the snake never lies in the story. Um, and then Adam and Eve make a choice and they choose the serpent's words more than God's words. And so as Jews understand it, as also Orthodox Christians understand this, this is the first instance of idolatry, of someone choosing another God, another being, preferring them to God, right? So therefore, you're making this statement, like, you know, effectively, God doesn't matter, I'd rather listen to this guy over here, right? So, you know, God has set up a trajectory, God has set up a creation, God has put Torah into the world, thou shalt not eat of this tree, and Adam and Eve break Torah, they decide we're going to do what the snake told us to do, or Eve's going to do what the snake told her to do, and Adam's going to do what Eve told him to do. And so now the choice is made, and now Adam and Eve are able in humanity, the space is open for us to kind of aim for something else. The way that I think about it is this is where we aim to the nothing and our lives sort of are dictated by the nothing. And this is kind of what Karl Barth is getting at too, is that it really becomes about ourselves, right? Adam and Eve, make the choice they make because they see that it's going to benefit them, not each other. Right. And then we can see all this stuff that's broken down in our world. in that same mindset is that it's not rooted to anything bigger than itself. It's just itself. And therefore it is nihilistic. It's nothingness. And so what I think is, is that we live, when we live a life cultivated that way, and we live our life aimed toward the nothingness rather than to light or truth or the something that God has for us, we first begin to live a life that is somewhat hellish, even though we might not be aware of it, right? It might not be till later we realize that we've got no one around us. We've, we've, you know, we've, you know, we've isolated ourselves or we've broken everything or we've ruined things for other people or whatever. But then I think there comes the reality that you live that life now, once you go to the grave and that was with the trajectory you've had, then you probably experience the grave and a more concentrated version of that. And then comes this judgment. And I think that the Bible implies <laughs> that everyone's going to stand before Jesus and everyone's going to see kind of everything and they're going to be like, oh, wow, I screwed up. I lived my life really wrongly. And so and so then it's going to be like, OK, well, come on in. You're, you're good to go. I think there might still be some people, though, that are like, nah, this isn't this isn't where I want to be. Right. Like, I'm not going to do this. And so maybe they find themselves off in another state, you know, what we call hell um, or whatever. 
And I'll get to another way of thinking about hell here in a moment that also kind of changed my thinking on it. But what I ultimately think then is that after a while, people are going to be like, well, yeah, right. this was a bad idea. And then God's like, okay, come on out. Like, you, you don't have to stay there anymore, right? Like, I just don't think that it's, I think that this idea that hell is a sphere of spiritual existence, I think it does exist. But I think it's a place that we we somehow opt ourselves into based off of our own selfish ways of living. And I also think that it's not permanent. Hmm. I think that I think that ultimately because God gets what God wants because God is God, we are afforded the ability to get out of there and that ultimately, you know, we will. Um, Pope John Paul II uh, famously said that the scripture tradition is uh, clear enough that there actually is a place called hell. And he says, but I just happen to believe that it's empty. You Pope, know, this Pope John Paul II said that? Yeah. Interesting, because I have a quote from him. Yeah, in 1999, he said that rather than a place, hell indicates the state of those who freely and definitively separate themselves from God, the source of all life and joy. Yeah. Interesting. Now, the Orthodox Christian world has a very different and interesting take on hell. I've heard of that one, and that's very interesting. And I, I want you, I want you to, to describe it, because I, I heard about that, and I was like, that's really, I mean, it's kind of scary. Right. Thought of it. I think it's actually scarier than the stuff that we're side of where we kind of learn through, you know, our, our cultural osmosis and stuff. But, but go ahead. The idea that hell is actually being in God's presence, but it's being in the presence of God, of a, of, of a being that you have scorned. And so you experience the light and the joy of God as fire, flame and pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it reminds me of when I was a kid and, you know, you go through enough like discipline from your parents, like, and you know what, like a look is. Mm -hmm. And my mom always tells people the story that like, there were times when if I misbehaved or something or did something wrong, my mom would like, look at me and I would go, no, don't give me that look. Please don't give me that look. Please don't. Mm -hmm. I, I, I actually start like freaking out about it. <laughs> That's kind of what it reminds me of. Yeah. And I, I, it makes me think of something my father-in-law has said about the one time that, he he had stolen i want to say he stolen some fish hooks yeah he stole some fish hooks from like a bait store or something and his dad found out about it and when his dad or his parents anyway when his dad found out about it, his dad told him he said i'm just so disappointed in you and ray <laughs> said he said i kind of i was like i would have preferred like can you hit me with your belt or something <laughs> yeah. like that would be way that's way where you know no there's something very poetic about how just being a place where you just just with overwhelming parents guilt <laughs> yeah i mean and i think that i think there's really something to that that yeah. it's it's the same place that we're just but it's rooted in our, our experience of it right mm -hmm. um which again to me leaves open the possibility that you can convert right because yeah. that's the ultimate to me that's the ultimate thing about about the the, the the graciousness of god revealed in the christian tradition is that conversion transformation is always possible this idea that we would find ourselves like sort of eternally abandoned by God just seems so troubling to me. Right. And so this idea that that hell is a temporary space, which kind of leads into what we'll talk about next week. So I don't want to get into that conversation too too much. Okay. Um but but again I think that because yeah, we'll we'll get into that next week. Well, I don't want to get too much into it. Could you could you maybe describe the type of person who would ultimately end up in hell? Because I think that's what people want to know. That's what people like. I don't want to be that person. 
You well, know? you know, and it's like when people say like, oh, like I like when I was telling you, like, I was a good person, you know, I never mm-hmm. committed any crimes. You're like, well, as you know, you, know, you lied well, and you looked at Kari Wurr and. Uh... <laughs> well, listen, this one's this. This is I'm going to have to I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to balance on this razor, razor's edge right here. Okay? <laughs> OK. All right. So the the classic Western example of a like without a doubt they're in hell person. Yeah. Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, right? right. <laughs> the scene of Little so, Nicky. That's going to be a weird clip to add to this podcast. Basically, what I'm proposing is what a lot of Christians sort of deride as a form of universalism, universal salvation, right? And so the the, the almost guaranteed response to this is going to be, well, what about Hitler? Are you going to say that Hitler gets off scot-free? Hitler gets off, you know, gets into heaven or whatever? Or like you also go through the serial killers, right? John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The conversation of whether they get off scot-free is a different conversation than do they wind up in heaven someday? Because I don't think anyone who does those that level of wickedness gets off scot-free. But I have to believe that the idea of somebody seeing the error of their ways and making a drastic act of repentance, reconciliation, and transformation is far more powerful than just annihilating someone. I, I think so too. I mean, I, I agree with that. Um, and you know, that was kind of called into question lately. I mean, what it, what happened last month when Donald Trump was on his way out of the presidency? There were a bunch of bunch of ex, bunch of federal executions that happened, right? Right. And um, I thought it was really interesting. There's this um, there's this journalist and writer that I really like. Her name is Elizabeth Brunick. Writes for the New York Times. And she's a Christian from Dallas, and um, she's also a leftist. And she wrote about some of these people who were facing death, some of them who were not actually, like, you know, mentally in the right place to have to actually have to experience that, to actually have that, you know, punishment. Her objective was to kind of, like, just an outpouring of empathy towards these people. Like, they don't deserve to die. They don't deserve to be murdered by the state for what they did, even if what they did was so horrible. And, you know, you read some of these people that you're defending, and it's like, it's really awful what they did. There's a reason why they're on death row, you know? Right. But, and people brought this up to her, and she would tell them, she's like, you're right, it was awful. But, you know, Peter denied Jesus three times. And and, and what else? I mean, there are other apostles who did, like, horrible things, and then, you know, it's, it's kind of evident that they probably ended up in heaven. The whole point is reconciliation. So, Book of Revelation, chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. Its rider was called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war justly. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and on his head were many royal crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He wore a robe, dyed with blood, and his name was called Word of God. Heaven's armies, wearing fine linen that was white uh, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword that that he will use to strike down the nations." Okay, strike down the nations. 
He is the one who will rule them with an iron rod, and he is the one who will trample the winepress of Almighty God's passionate anger. All right, so he's, he's using the, the sword that comes out of his mouth to defeat the nations, right? And then we get the final judgment in chapter 20, and we see that judgment is given on people, and then it talks about the nation's being thrown into the lake of fire. And then ultimately this was kind of death and the grave were thrown into the fiery lake, right? Like that's actually the thing that's thrown away was the most clear thing right there. Um, but then, um, um, then it goes on and says, I see a new heaven and a new earth. And my favorite thing about this is then what it says is I didn't, and the new heaven comes in and it says, I didn't see a temple in the city because its temple is the Lord God almighty and the lamb. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory is its light and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So this, the book of Revelation lays out right there that these nations and these kings of the earth who are depicted just a few chapters earlier as being people who wage war against Jesus and are seduced by the devil and are defeated by the sword that comes out of Jesus's mouth and that are cast into judgment are now walking into the city of the new Jerusalem. So the book of Revelation lays out this vision that it's ultimately about transformation of the world. It's not about defeat and destruction. It's about it's about this renewal thing taking place. And so it's a very different conversation than people getting off scot-free. You know, God's not going to look at, he's not going to look at um, John Wayne Gacy and be like, oh, Johnny, now you shouldn't have done that. It's all right, you scamp. Get on in here, right? Like, that's just not going to right. leave, leave the clown mask. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, there, people are going to have to deal with the, the consequences of their actions. And I think people who have lived a life of hurting other people are going to have to be confronted with what that meant, mm -hmm. right? Like that, to know what that pain is like. And, and like you said, it might be sort of some, some sort of cosmic equivalent of getting the angry look from your mom. Um, or it might be a place of actual fire and, 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 and all of that, because, you know, to give a little preview for next week, you know, fire in the Bible tends to be more associated with purification than it has to do with suffering. So, um, but I think ultimately, you know, there is a place of punishment that we put ourselves in as people, but I don't think it's permanent. I heard someone sort of talk about their their sort of take on the afterlife and um or at least that moment before you kind of cross over i should say um where it's like you know there there's there's going to be those people who are trying really hard to do the right thing whatever that looks like you know they're looking out for their families they're looking out for other people they're doing what they can that they know is right that that we're all sort of ingrained with and then there's going to be people who are like going to just ignore that mm -hmm. because they're so scared of losing all of this right that they do as much as they can for themselves and mm -hmm. that looks like grasping for power that looks like greed it looks like lust it looks like every like earthly thing that's like just hitting the pleasure centers over and over and over and over again, as opposed to like 
doing something for people, <laughs> you know what I mean? Even yeah. just taking care of yourself, not so much to like stimulate yourself, but just to like take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And he's and this person said, you know, that's the difference between somebody who whose lights are going to go down when they die, and someone whose lights are going to go up. Yeah. And I found that to be kind of profound. Yeah, I mean, I, think about it a little bit too, just in the way we remember people when they die, right? Someone, you know, <laughs> this makes me think of uh, one of my liturgy professors in seminary talked about the difficulty of doing a funeral. He says when, when you and everyone, when you and everyone in the room knows that the guy in the box is a bastard, <laughs> but um, you know, you, uh, you know, when we, we look at the way that like. You know, when people die and they give obituaries sometimes, I'm trying to remember who's there was an obituary of someone recently, a couple of years back, where oh, it was um was it Scalia that just in general got like some harsh obituaries. I, don't, I actually don't know. I don't I don't, um, I don't recall. But yeah, there was someone, there was some political figure. I thought of Scalia that I remember reading some obituaries that were just like they were harsh. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and you know, when you think about like that's how that's that's how people are going to remember you. Then that's you know that's kind of what your afterlife is going to be. Even you know, even if you're going to say there's maybe no real afterlife, right? It's that that there's a poetic quality to this, right? Yeah. That it's yeah, um, but people who live profoundly selfishly. Right. Don't get, they don't have monuments built to them. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess that's not true. Andrew Jackson's on the twenty dollar bill. <laughs> that's the, there's, there's plenty. I think there's a lot. There's, never mind. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I guess that's kind of what again is this sort of the selfishness versus like selfless because it's like you are denying a part. Like selfishness can be seen as something human, but so is selflessness. Like I don't, I don't like this idea that human beings are just. Oh, that's that's like that's one of those you know, cliche things that people say, right? Like by nature, human beings are selfish creatures, right? I'm like, okay, we're also selfless, right? Like I'm pretty sure most people, if they saw someone drowning, they would do something, and so to actively I'd den- not lend a hand. <laughs> yeah, well, not not Phil Collins. Uh, <laughs> he, he's he's on the list. Um, <laughs> Um, but I mean, just to deny, I mean, it's almost, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's just as human to be selfless. As it is to be selfish, I guess uh, is what I'm trying to say. Whatever right. that means. <laughs> right. No, it's true. Well, it's because, you know, we contain multitudes and it gets back to what I think is, you know, captured in the Genesis story is that, you know, we are, we have both in us. We have both aspects of ourselves in us. Um, you know, one thing I didn't mention at that is I, I, is that this is sort of something that blew my mind and I think it kind of sets a little bit more of the conversation is that, you know, creation has a trajectory in the, in the Bible, right? We, we tend to think of because of the King James version of Genesis one, one, we tend to think of creation as, you know, it's like a black screen and then suddenly the power comes on or, you know, God is just flinging stars into the cosmos, right? Like we tend to think of that, that we emphasize that there's nothing and then there's something, right? But, and that's, that's where our emphasis goes when we think about it. But in the Hebrew way it's constructed, that they sort of take for granted the idea that there had been nothing and now there was something. But they're more interested in the state of that early something. They're not, they're not as worried about 
you know, the ex nihilo part. They're more, you know, saying that when God, when God began his creation, because that's actually how it goes, right? It says, when God began his creation, all was this formless chaotic void, right? So, and then, you know, what God does is God issues commands to this creation. God's doing Torah, right? This is, I have to think about it from a Jewish mind, right? God said, let thou shalt, thou shalt become light. Okay, creation obeys. Like, so everything obeys the Torah that God has given out to it all throughout that pattern of creation. So, you know, God is basically drawing creation out of this chaos. So, you know, God's voice goes out and it responds. And so creation has this trajectory of going back toward God, which by the way, I started, I, I started thinking about this when I started to realize that our conception of creation is very patriarchal in the sense that it's, projective god is projecting creation he's you know imposing it onto nothingness whereas yeah so i should think about like does the bible actually justify a more feminist approach to creation which is more receptive you know in the traditional sense of feminine versus masculine and um and i realized that actually the hebrew scriptures are totally in a feminine thing god is drawing creation out rather than imposing it um but so again i mean creation has a trajectory and so we as people have the choice to aim what, uh, you know, what, how, we're, what, you know, we can sort of decide what our trajectory is going to be. Are we going to, are we going to go with the trajectory of creation that's leading back toward God? Or are we going to try to impose our own trajectory onto creation, thereby aiming toward the nothing, the thing outside of creation? Um, and, and so I think that that's where the, that's where it all comes down to is that we are, you know, we have we have these choices and we've made bad choices, but, you know, we are now liberated from the consequences of our bad choices to be able to make the good and right choices. And so that to me is why I think this, this you know, it, it is good news, why we call it good news gospel is, you know, like when you read Paul, when Paul's going around in Acts preaching to people, he's not talking about how to get to heaven or how to avoid hell. He's saying your sins are forgiven. That seemed to be the thing that people in the first century really cared about was hearing somebody say like, Hey, you know, this bad crap that goes on, like that's forgiven. You don't have to worry about that anymore. You know, because that's the thing that everybody sort of saw as affecting their relationship with divine beings or whatever. And so if that is not a problem, it's forgiven. And the, this idea that you're going to die and become nothing that's also undone because of the resurrection from the dead, then we're free now. We're free from the burden of having to save ourselves. We're free from the fear of having to avoid hell. Um, we don't have to let that define who we're going to be anymore. And this is really sad to me that we not that we fairly quickly as, as a religion were like, nah, that, let's make people pretty scared of hell. That's actually a pretty effective way to get a lot of people to convert. <laughs> Um, because that's basically what happened at the Great Awakening. It's such a slippery slope because it, it becomes an us versus them kind right. of thing, right? It's like, oh, these people are going to hell, we're going to heaven. Right. And like, how does that affect your view of humanity? How does that affect your view of the world and your politics yeah. and your, your, your morals? Well, I mean, okay, so, we're, so the word gospel, you know, evangelion, it has word or it has meaning in its ancient context. 
the Evangelion was the, was a message that you know when like you know the emperor had a kid or whatever they would send messengers out throughout the empire because you know they didn't have Twitter they didn't have any of that kind of stuff to know so they had to come bearing this good news to say like hey like there's a new emperor or the emperor's got a kid or we won this thing or you know war is over or whatever so so think about this JP if you if you receive the word we're all going to heaven, you would probably want to tell everybody that. I know for sure, hey, guess what? We don't have to worry about it anymore. It's not just the, hey, here's the here's the way, here's the path that you can take to get there, but rather like, no, it's done. Like we're all, you know, we have this, this is, and in, in fact, we can start living a more better life now, right? Like that's, to me, that's what excited, that's what got these people invigorated to go and to carry this to all these different like weird parts of the world because, you know, they saw the power in this and it wasn't about like, hey, I'm going to go try to get a whole bunch of people on my team so that we can be smug and write thick books and and look down at each other. But more about, hey, look, we can actually live a pretty spiritually liberated life now because we've been freed from the burden of having to worry about this afterlife crap, <laughs> because that's kind of part of it for everybody in, in, the, in the world, right? Throughout human history, it kind of obliterates that us first then. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We're two episodes in our series. We had never mentioned the show The Good Place. I've not, I've not watched it. <laughs> I haven't watched it in a while. Uh, but I remember I really liked it, uh, even though it was, it was just getting kind of convoluted as it went along. Um, but, like, I think what's interesting, because I, I, I did read, like, where it was headed, where it, was, where it sort of eventually ended up. And apparently it ended up with, like, they started giving people the choice, like, you don't have to go to heaven, you don't have to go to the good place or the bad place, you can walk through this door and cease to exist if you like. Like, giving them that sort of choice to just, like, stop existing. Hmm. Which I thought, I I mean, and, and, and I guess... It's kind of Buddhist. Yeah, that's what someone had said, who I, who I had read, uh, was talking that about it. By the way, that's an interesting thing to me that's become very popular, that reincarnation is very popular in the West. Really? Anymore. I didn't know that. Yeah, so <clears throat> there's this there's this interesting phenomenon out there. Uh, some religions, religious studies folks have done this research to find that uh, the most popular religion among American young adults, originally it was done as teenagers, they're now you know adults, um, the ones who did the study, is called um, therapeutic moral deism moralistic therapeutic moralistic deism um they found this by studying teenagers across religions across socioeconomic and racial divides and basically trying and asking them questions about what they believed and they were able to find this like these shocking number of commonalities that allowed them to that allowed us to construct an idea of sort of what popular religion in american or western society really looks like and this this religion basically is the idea that it's therapeutic, it's about feeling good. Um, it's moralistic that it's based on what your behavior, if you act, you know, that kind of what we already talked about, you know, if you do good things, then good things will happen to you. You do bad things, bad things happen to you. Um, but it's ultimately deistic in that God is distant. They don't believe that God interacts with people on a very close basis. But one of the things about this, they also found to that study that a lot of young people believe in reincarnation. They like the idea of reincarnation, but they interpret in reincarnation as the opportunity for a do-over, which is not what Buddhism or Hinduism says about reincarnation. Because if you're back, then you've 
screwed up. You know, being reincarnated is not a good thing. Ultimately, you want to re- be, you know, reincarnated to a higher plane of existence. And so it's interesting that in the West, we've managed to interpret something that would be seen as punishment in a, as like a, a mulligan hmm. or whatever. Um, I'm wondering if video games play a role in that. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. Yeah. But that's, but getting back to the thing with Christianity, I think to me, when we talk about it the way that I'm talking, that we're talking about it in the show right now, is that you don't need, you don't need the idea of a do over. Mm-hmm. It's done. You know, or you get infinite do overs because of God's graciousness. It's not, you know, it's like, oh man, I did this one thing. Now I'm going to go to hell and it's all over for me. Right. It's... Well, let me tell you why I'm starting to kind of la- why I'm I'm latching on to this that you're sharing with me about about hell, is that it it sort of is filling in what always seemed to me like a missing step between the judgment and being cast in Lake of Fire or going to the New Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're talking about like oh, so like you die, you go to hell, then you get judged, and you just go to second hell. And it's like, uh, it's just like, it's, what about it's, second breakfast? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> what about Helsies? He- he- I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it always seemed to me that there was a missing step there. Like, what happens? Like, he's going to tell me something I already knew. Like, is is anyone going to be surprised? Is anyone going to go from going to go from hell to heaven? And everyone told me like, no, no, no. You just got to go through that process. It's just the process. You stick to the process. I'm like, there's something very American about this. <laughs> right. Right. It's um, like, it's like, it's, it's, it's like a, it's like an HR meeting. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's interesting though, that like, no, 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 there will be some who will like, they'll get another chance. Cause, mm-hmm. cause why not? Like, isn't that what this is all about? Yeah. I mean, just like, just like those senior citizens at the retirement center in cocoon who, <laughs> got into that pool and they got that second chance at life. You know, Steve Gutenberg, <laughs> I didn't realize this until I was looking for images to use in the, the cocoon alarm. Total himbo back then. Oh yeah. Absolute himbo. Oh yeah. I just say, I just, that that's, that's the point I'm trying to make that it, that's, it's filling in a step that I feel like is sort of like, just sort of like painfully absent that um, people just don't give us a, a second glance to, you know, they just right. accept it. Yeah. I mean, cause if you think about it, you've been in hell, let's say, let's say, you know, let's say that you went to hell in like the 1600s and it's like, I don't know, the year like 22 something and Jesus has come back and it's the new millennium or whatever. And here comes the final judgment. They pull you out of hell and then they show you your whole life on a big screen in front of everybody. And you're just like, yep, that's me. And then <laughs> right back in, like, tell me something I don't know. It's almost like, I don't know. I don't want to paint a broad picture of people who might enjoy the fact that there are people who are going to experience that pain. It almost makes it seem like more enjoyable to somebody who is like inflicting that kind of pain. Like, Ooh, now they know. And yet they can't do anything about it now. It kind of makes it more. It adds this, like a level of sadism to it, I guess. Oh, I think I, I think you're totally right. Yeah, I think you're totally right. And I think it feeds into that 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 smug, you know, that us versus them, right? Like I'm better than you because I know that I'm not going to hell. Yeah. Which I mean, if you think about, I mean, totally makes sense when we look at 
what we're seeing in our political situation with people who sort of subscribe to that view of things theologically, right? That, that, that superiority, you know, I mean, look at Congresswoman Green, right? And, and the statement that she made on Twitter about like something about, um, about like, was it, this is why we're losing our country. Yeah. Like, well, I, Oh, because you think the liberals aren't part of this country. That's right. Because you get caught up in this us versus them. And the us are the people like you who you think are enlightened and right and true. And ah, basically it's reformed Christianity in a different. Well, I want to bring some comfort to you, Chuck. I want to ease your mind a little bit about Congresswoman green. Uh, she did get up on the stand today and did say that nine 11 in fact happened. So let's give her a break. You know? Well, but I, I don't think she ever denied nine eleven happened. I think she denied that a plane actually hit the Pentagon. I don't know. That's what she said on the stand. Apparently, yeah, I know. <laughs> she actually went up to be like, "I just want to say nine eleven happened." So cool, oh, man. Uh, man, not to get, uh, not to Sorry. get back into our, our politics or anything, but uh... right, right, right. right. Just, <laughs> it is an amazing thing. Um, Cool. Well, but, is there anywhere else you want to go? That's kind of the end of sort of my, my talking points. I don't know if there's anything else you had in mind oh, that man. you wanted to cover. I'm good because I'm trying to be careful because I don't want to get into next week's episode. Right. Yeah. That's going to be fascinating because I don't know anything about purgatory. I know nothing. I know it's like when I read Dante, I, I when, you, when, you, when you're assigned to read Dante, you really only read Inferno. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah, so you don't be Purgatorio. Yeah, so you don't get to Paradiso or Purgatorio. Uh, and that probably would have been the extent of my understanding of Purgatory. And, and the only understanding I have of it is just like, I don't really know. I don't. I know nothing. I know nothing. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to, A, do the research and also to talk about it. You know, I, want, I want people to be, I want to be clear that I think it, it's not helpful because what, you know, I, I'm not going to say deny the existence of something called hell. Okay. But what it is, I think, is the important piece for us to talk about, because I think it definitely exists. But for me, the big question of is, you know, is it permanent? And is it, you know, this, you know, this whole, you know, sort of pop culture thing of it being like, you know, fire cavern with the prince of darkness ruling over it and all that kind of stuff. Like, I just don't think that that's, you know, that's Dante. That's not right. Or Milton. Or South Park, yeah, <laughs> the, you know, the or uh, the Simpsons. Um, the Simpsons actually has a pretty uh, consistent view of uh, of hell, um, and actually, I think that's how I I think that was my my first reveal of like what hell is was an episode of The Simpsons when um, they were stealing cable, and then they went to church, and then their Sunday school teacher um, explained like what hell was. And of course, like the when when the teacher's like describing hell, Bart's like, "That sounds awesome." <laughs> <laughs> and and like his, I remember his questions. Like to this day, I remember him saying, "Like, okay, but like, do you kind of get used to it? You know, is like getting in a jacuzzi where it's like really hot at first, but you just kind of adjust to it." <laughs> um, say, is there anything I can do to avoid coming back here? Oh, sure, yeah, but uh, hey, you wouldn't like it. Oh, okay. See you later then. Goodbye, Bart. Remember, lie, cheat, steal, and listen to heavy metal music. Yes, sir. Chuck, thank you so much. You're welcome, man. Thank you. Uh, I'm I'm really enjoying uh, this these discussions we're having this month about the afterlife, and I'm really excited about talking about purgatory because again, I know nothing. And uh, yeah, 
So be yeah, sure. I mean, for all I know, uh, the result of this may be that I'm put on some kind of heresy trial and burned at the stake. So, <laughs> hey. Fun. Fun times. It'll be a fun time. We'll bring the marshmallows. We'll make s'mores. We'll call them chmores. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So. Like, subscribe, ring that bell, leave a comment, leave a leave a leave a, a question. If you if you have any questions about hell or heaven or purgatory, we would love to answer stuff like that. Uh, maybe you listen to this podcast and you think everything we're saying is we're just full of crap. It's all horrible. It's not what you grew up with. Uh, and you wanna you wanna you wanna give us a piece of your mind? We'll let you do that. We would love oh. to. We would love to interact with you. So, yes. have a wonderful week. We'll see you again next week. Good journey. Good journey. <laughs>